welcome to Lit from the Basement. This is Danielle. This is Max. I'm an author and professor. I wasn't an actor, but I played one on TV. Now say at home, Dad. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> We're a married couple who discuss literature in our basement while our children are sleeping. The boys are now asleep. So let's talk. Okay. So it's my birthday month. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you turn 40, it should be a birthday month. Yeah. And, I'm and expecting when you're 50, gifts every day. <laughs> expect away. <laughs> uh, so I've chosen a poem that was published the year I was born. Oh, okay. It's a poem called Meditation at Lagunitas from Robert Hass's second collection, Praise, mm -hmm. which was published in 1979. Lagunitas, California? Yeah, Lagunitas, okay. California. Very good. Um, that was something that I had to look up um, the first few times I read the poem because I kept forgetting. Mm -hmm. I tried to look up to see if Lagunitas was translated from a particular language. I assumed that it was uh, Spanish and it was just a word I was unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I looked up the Spanish uh, translation, there was a blank. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually Basque. What? For friends. Oh, yeah, there is an aspect of friendship to this poem that I really like, but I, I do think that it was named this to set us in a particular place. Okay. But before we begin to consider this poem, Robert Hass, who's a literary giant mm -hmm. in contemporary po poetry, I wanted to consider me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so I'm turning 40 this okay. month, yeah. right? I have been doing a lot of thinking back. Mm -hmm. over the past decade and everything that's happened and everything that's changed in my life between 30 and 40. Big, big decade for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty smash decade. It was very, it was very big. First of all, I met and buried you, mm -hmm. had two children, published three books and a chapbook. Yeah, got uh, tenure, got, got your doctorate. Got my doctorate, got tenure. In that order. <laughs> <laughs> They gave me tenure before I even got a doctorate. I'm that good, folks. No, I. it started off, though, pretty lousy. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was my 30th birthday or my 31st. I can't, can't remember which. But at that point, I had begun my doctoral degree, and I had been shopping around my first manuscript for about four years. Mm. I think this must be 31. And I was on vacation with an ex-boyfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he wasn't the ex-boyfriend then. He was, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was on vacation with my boyfriend at the time, who is now my ex-boyfriend, and his family. During that day on my birthday, they decided they were going to have a family counseling meeting, to which I was invited. And like an intervention? <laughs> yeah. It would have been an intervention if anybody had been on drugs, but nobody was. They just didn't get along. And wanted to go to a counselor to talk it out, which, you know, seems like a good thing to do. But they invited me because I'd been dating this person for so long. And they felt like you need to know what you were getting into? No, it wasn't like that. It was like, well, you know, she's basically one of the family. Like, I, I spent every Christmas with them for years. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, it was, uh, I, that was one of the sadder things about losing that relationship, actually, is I was very fond of his family. Okay. <laughs> but it still wasn't fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sitting here and they're arguing. And there's a counselor here, and I'm just like, I can't believe that this is my birthday. <laughs> because, first of all, I did not like the boyfriend. I hadn't liked him for years and wanted to leave him and couldn't bring myself to do it. And I don't even want to go to counseling with this guy. Like, I don't, I certainly much don't want his family. <laughs> much less his family. I thought and it was bad because I introduced you to my family on our second date. <laughs> you did. I was like, wow, this guy is pretty serious. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, our first date lasted nine days. Um, oh, right. When you came to see me. Yeah. yeah I think I, seven days. I seven think. days. Yeah. Um, and our second date was a prolonged stay in Vegas. In which I met your family. Yeah. Yeah. During which I met your family. At a casino table. <laughs> At a casino table. Yeah, that's right. I was playing pie gat with your sister and your mom. I think most people listening would agree Uh huh. that sitting around playing pie gal in the Bellagio in Vegas Sounds more fun to do with a boyfriend's family than doing group counseling. <laughs> yes. Not as informative, <laughs> but more fun. 
I, I recall having a very good time is what I recall. Um, <laughs> okay, so back to your, your, your wonderful 30th or 31st birthday. Okay, so I, I went to go get some money out of an ATM for some reason. I think it was going to a movie or something like that. And, um, or to pay for they had you pay for the doctor at the counseling <laughs> visit. Is that- no, they didn't have me pay for the counselor. Um, I think I think the father maybe was taking me for a, a, the to go see a movie. He was very sweet to me. Uh, I forget I forget why I was I went to go and and of course I couldn't draw any money out. Um, my, my it said you know no insufficient not, funds insufficient funds. And I called my bank account to see you know what it, what was going on and and learned that I was like. 200 something dollars overdrawn in my checking account which I had not done since I was 19 mm-hmm. when I very first like was on my own and and living on my own and working on my own and all of that and was like oh my god I'm like 31 and my life has not changed <laughs> <laughs> since I was 19 I still want to be a writer and I'm not <laughs> I still am in school I'm still broke I don't have a house. I don't have children. I don't own a car. I don't like. I just like went down the whole like list of things uh, that I that I realized and just started having like a meltdown, and was most upset about the fact that I was not, I was not yet published, mm-hmm. right? Like that I had been wor- working on it that long, right? At, without much result. Of course, I'd been published in magazines and journals, and I won have a book under your belt, yeah. and I won a national fellowship. But I, I did not have a book, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was afraid that maybe, possibly, everyone had been lying to me <laughs> about my work being good enough, mm-hmm. right? And so I was having like a total meltdown fit. And when I think about like what like forty one is going to look like for me, to think about everything that's changed between. Now and then, mm-hmm. I feel really grateful. I feel really grateful for a lot of things for my family, for you, for my book publications, for my job. All of that mm-hmm. um, seems pretty spectacular. If I could go back to that 31 year old self and be like, if you just wait two more months, which was the case, that's when I got the call about my first book being published. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't long. Met, and then you met me. <laughs> no, then then I then I got the call about my first book being published, and then uh, a few months after that, then the uh, then I got the call about my second book being published. My first and second <laughs> yeah. book were published in the same year, within like four months of each other. And then I quickly finished the doctoral degree and got a job at the University of Cincinnati, and Whistling. met you, <laughs> snagged you, and took you with me. The rest is a long, long history, but um, with more ups than downs. Yes, certainly so. But yeah, so much has changed uh, in in this time. But the poem uh, that we're going to discuss today, I read when in my 20s, I read in my 30s, and it has meant something slightly different to me, depending on how old I was Mm -hmm. when I read it and the level of education I had when I read it. I must have first encountered it in college. It seemed like Robert Hass, his book, Human Wishes, I think, had won the Pulitzer mm-hmm. while I was in college. And so people were sort of paying, paying a lot of attention to him to begin with. And I, one of my two jobs for my undergraduate was working in the library as, um, you know, for a, like a work study gig. Mm-hmm. I basically just shelved books all day long. And I was always super excited when I got a cart full of books uh, to shelve in the poetry section. Yeah, the new ones. Yeah. First crack, first dibs. <laughs> Well, no, it was just like people had had checked them out mm-hmm. um, and I and I had to check them back in. You know, I had to put them on the shelf correctly and would sort of shirk my responsibilities and sit in the library and read some of those books, uh, which is a really a fun part of the job. It, except for I did get caught once reading instead of shelving. It was one of the uh, one of the older librarians who I couldn't seem to charm in any way. And uh she was, she was on to you. Yeah, I think she was on me. She was like walking past and she, she, I, I felt somebody looking at me and I looked up and she just was standing at the edge of the aisle. Like as she was walking by, she said, no rest for the wicked. <laughs> <laughs> and kept going. I was like, oh, come on, I deserve this lady. <laughs> In that exploration, 
uh, in shelving this book, I was like, oh, Robert Haas. He's the one who wrote Human Wishes. Uh, what is this book about? And this is one of his earlier books. Mm-hmm. I come to understand now that this book is one of the books that really solidified him as a large figure in the literary world. His first book, Field Guide, uh, won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Mm-hmm. And and it was great, obviously. I mean, it, it came out to great acclaim. But then, you know, you never really know if somebody's going to follow up mm-hmm. right. <laughs> with something great. So his sophomore book, Praise, I think is when he really started uh, getting huge attention. And this particular poem is quite famous at this point. It's been around for a long time, and it's a perennial favorite of so many teachers of poetry and poetry students. And so um, I'd like for us to read it. Okay. I should probably mention <laughs> that Hass is one of the one of the biggest writers in American poetry. Still um, living. Still living. Okay. Yeah. But he's also he's also a critic and a translator. Most notably he's translated the Polish poet Milos, mm. uh, as well as many Japanese poets, uh, particularly haiku poets, Basho, Busan, Isa. His second volume of poems, this one, Praise, won the William Carlos Williams Award. He went on to win the, the Pulitzer, I believe, for Human Wishes. He's also, for other <laughs> other volumes, he's won the National Book Critics Circle Award, the National Book Award. He's he's won basically every major national literary award for poetry. The books that he's published usually there's a lot of a span of time, a long span of time between publications. But mm-hmm. you know he's doing something right <laughs> in did, between those. Did he win the uh, the Arkansas Miller Prize? <laughs> the, Ar- the Miller Williams Arkansas Poetry Prize. Yeah. No, he did not. Boom! You got him. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Robert Haas feels envious of me in any way. (laughs) I believe there is nothing about my life that he would feel. You've got to kiss me a lot more than him. That's true. He he's really missing out Mm. there. (laughs) Okay, there. I've done the thing (laughs) where I talked about Robert Haas. Okay. Um, As I read this, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps pay attention to the way. Hmm. Never mind. That might give something too too much away. Okay. <laughs> Meditation at Lagunitas by Robert Haas. All the new thinking is about loss. In this, it resembles all the old thinking. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea. That the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch is, by his presence, some tragic falling off from a first world of undivided light. Or the other notion that, because there is in this world no one thing, to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds. A word is elegy to what it signifies. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend there was a thin wire of grief, a tone almost querulous. After a while I understood that, talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, pine, hair, woman, you, and I. There was a woman I made love to, and I remember how, holding her small shoulders in my hands sometimes, I felt a violent wonder at her presence, like a thirst for salt, for my childhood river with its island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange silver fish called pumpkin seed. It hardly had to do with her. Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. I must have been the same to her. But I remember so much, 
the way her hands dismantled bread, the thing her father said that hurt her, what she dreamed. There are moments when the body is as numinous as words, days that are the good flesh continuing. Such tenderness, those afternoons and evenings, saying blackberry, blackberry, blackberry. Just before you read this, uh-huh. you started to tell me to pay attention to and then withdrew, saying no, that would give too much away. <laughs> the way that the idea solidifies. Of brambles into a blackberry or? Maybe we'll just we'll have to get to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mentioned before that I've been reading this poem so long that... I have had sort of different responses to it at different times of my life. The first when I was in my 20s and then the second when I was in 30s. And, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, (laughs) perhaps it'll have a whole new meeting for me. I guess I'll have to know. I'll I'll check back in at the end of this decade. Mm -hmm. I always assumed that the title actually refers to a place, Lagunitas, California, Mm -hmm. which I've never been to. But on on a map, it looks like it's about an hour outside of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, north. In the middle of a huge natural wilderness preservation Mm -hmm. area is what it looks like. It's a lot of green space. And in that part of the country, I kind of imagine some towering redwoods. And I I also imagine 70s, if he wrote this in the 70s, it was published in 79, Meditation, California. (laughs) I'm just like, just kind of found himself washed up on the hippie cult. (laughs) Slouching towards Bethlehem and all that. Possibly. Uh, he's he's right there. He did grow up. I, I think, well, he's very much associated with California. I don't, oh. know if, I don't know if he grew up there. He teaches at Berkeley or mm. taught at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So he's he's very much a West Coast California yeah. poet. So like North Bay person. Yes, for sure. I'm not quite sure. Because he talked about a river. So that's definitely not Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, Lagunitas uh, translates at least from the Basque to mean friends. Mm. So we, we have this setting, and we maybe have an underlying idea of friendship happening here. And then we get these first two lines, which are really bold. Mm-hmm. They're very bold in their uh, philosophical arc, right? All the new thinking is about loss. In this, it resembles all the old thinking. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I love that as uh, as a start. It's I mean, it's very voicey, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's it's pointing directly toward ideas of philosophy, which are always interesting to think about. Um, and it undercuts itself. Right. All the new thinking is about loss. In this, oh, it wait. resembles all the old thinking. <laughs> and so it is not new at all. Mm-hmm. It's just a new permutation of the same. A new packaging of the same old thoughts. Yeah. Which could still be the disillusionment of coming to find utopia in the hippie world and going, oh, no, more <laughs> of the same. It could be. I I feel like I, I'm interested in this voice yes. at the beginning. Yeah. You know, I'm like, all right, you've got my attention. Yep. Explain yourself. Yeah. And then he goes on. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea, that the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead-sculpted trunk of that black birch is by his presence, some tragic falling off from a first world of undivided light. I do like how it's that clown, line break, faced woodpecker. Because <laughs> that's how that... The next, yeah. Yeah, the limpid clarity of a general idea, that clown... <laughs> yeah, that the clown, Yeah. yeah. And and you don't expect it to be a woodpecker at the end. No. Right. Because because of the first time I encountered this, mm-hmm. I was an undergraduate student, had just taken my first philosophy class. The first thing I thought of when I read these lines was Plato's theory of ideal forms. Do you do you know this or have you I can put it together the platonic ideal mm-hmm. from what you just said. Yes. But I only know the platonic ideal of beauty. Yeah, okay. Isn't well, that, isn't you, that, can, you can use that. Isn't it like a ridiculously unattainable, perfection, sterile? Yes. Okay. The platonic, the, the word, the platonic ideal of blank mm-hmm. uh, is referring to his whole 
philosophy okay. in this particular area. Oh, so it's not like different aspects of existence. He was approaching. Today, I'm going to talk about the platonic idea, my idea of beauty. <laughs> On Wednesday, my <laughs> idea of hungry. <laughs> my idea of doorknob, yeah. <laughs> which I don't think they had back then. But <laughs> um, Latch. Yeah, they probably had a latch. Probably not a knob. Um, but uh, he posited that because the material world was changeable, mm-hmm. it was unreliable based only on appearances. But he believed that beyond this unreliable material world, there was another reliable world of permanence where everything existed in its true ideal form. Okay. So when you say the platonic ideal of blank, ideal forms are something that we might be able to imagine, but we would never be able to encounter it on Earth since everything on Earth, everything that we can perceive with our flawed senses was merely a a kind of shadow replica of this ideal form. Mm -hmm. You know, you could take a chair. Plato believed that in some world, a chair existed in its ideal form, (laughs) in this this sort of platonic ideal Mm -hmm. space. Great lumbar support. (laughs) Yes, totally. It's an ergonomic perfection. (laughs) It's a really uh, beautiful piece of wood, all carved from one piece. Right, yeah, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> they just carved the the tree down to this perfect right. chair. No, no studs, no glue, exactly. no screws. Yeah, yeah. But that you know, every chair that we encounter on Earth is flawed, mm-hmm. and by its very presence on Earth, a kind of tragic falling off <laughs> from a first world of undivided light. Okay, so there's the there's a first world where everything, the prototype of everything exists. Right. And then we get the, the crappy Xerox of yep. a Xerox of a yep. Xerox. Yes. Okay. We get the crap facsimile. Okay. So Plato also like really Wait, disliked. There's a perfect version of you floating around. <laughs> Something better than this. It's me, but rich. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'd take her. Mm. <laughs> no. Um. So Yes. Yeah, the the idea that um that if you if you take any sort of archetypal form like woman, you know you have this list later on which we'll get to, but mm-hmm. tree, chair, these sorts of things. Which so Plato really disliked art. Oh, <laughs> right, because if everything on the earth is already a facsimile of a perfect thing than a human rendering of a figure on the roof. So an artist is painting a tree, which is really the... the That's defiling it even more? Yes. It's even further away from the truth, from the true ideal form, right? Like the okay. further you get away from that, the less perfect it is. He, he definitely had an idea toward purity. Okay. Yeah. Or at the very least, he thought, you know, well, why do that? <laughs> of course, in the poem, Hass doesn't talk about a chair he gives us this gorgeous image of from the natural world the clown-faced woodpecker and one of the things i really love okay so the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch it's an image that's rich both in sight and in linguistic music if you notice all of the k sounds Mm -hmm. clown woodpecker sculpted trunk black and he ends with birch that ch sound Mm -hmm. So that beneath the phrase that he's saying, there's a constant happening here. So if we think that the woodpecker is sort of tapping on on the wood as we go, that sort of like minor tap, tap, tap kind of sound, that makes that, if he's going to pick a letter to do that, it's probably a good one. Mm -hmm. So right away... When we get to this, because he's talking about huge philosophical questions to begin with, and then we get to this really specific image. We know that this is a speaker who is engaging big ideas, but also loves the particulars of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not some bird jabbing at a tree. (laughs) It's the clown-faced woodpecker. Right, and it's not just even a woodpecker. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, It's a very specific woodpecker pecking at a the dead sculpted trunk. Of that black birch, right? Yeah. It's absolutely and utterly particular, which he needs here for contrast to the luminous clarity of a general idea, right? The specifics that you find on earth, the flaws in them, the specifics of each each thing 
is completely antithetical to the idea of an ideal form, hmm. which would be unchangeable, which would have no quirks to it. And uh, I think that that idea of purity pervades a lot, probably most of Western thinking. That there is some perfect thing. Right. Which we have to conceive of or that we are constantly working toward and that everything here is some tragic. Yeah. Cast off. Cast off <clears throat> from from what 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 is really good, but we cannot see or perceive or touch. Yeah. In fact, we say not even in this existence. We're supposed to die and move on to the next one to yeah. find it. Yes, exactly. The speaker goes on to name uh, a second philosophy based on loss, right? That's the first philosophy mm -hmm. that we just went through. This time it's on language. And and many of these lines felt very mysterious to me for a long time. Mm -hmm. once, I, once I'd taken a literary theory class and learned a little bit of postmodern linguistic theory, then they made more sense to me. Okay, good. Because you can see I have question mark huh at the end of that <laughs> well let's let's go through and see what you can glean uh the first because i i wasn't bothered by these lines uh when i was younger well, they sound quite beautiful i i didn't but i was just kind of like, well that sounds nice what's it signifying <laughs> so the next the next lines are or the notion that because there is in this world no one thing to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds a word is elegy to what it signifies. So I think the first time through mm -hmm. when I was younger, well, let's see, what what do you glean from this? I'm really stuck on, oh, uh, I start coming into, there is no word that rhymes with orange. <laughs> when we get <laughs> to, that's where my brain went when it's like, uh, no one thing to which the bramble of Blackberry corresponds. Yeah, and Blackberry is italicized here. Mm -hmm. So he's drawing attention to the singular word itself, Blackberry. The bramble of Blackberry corresponds. A word is elegy to what it signifies. So if, if we're thinking of what he, he's saying before, mm -hmm. right, this is sort of an extension of, of what he's talking about. So the speaker gives the example of the Blackberry bush, mm -hmm. the bramble, and According to um, this particular sort of notion of loss, the perfect example of Blackberry can't mm -hmm. be found anywhere in the world, according to the platonic ideal, right? There's not even on a, not even amongst because there would just be the one Blackberry, the right. one prime, and yes. therefore it would not be on a bramble. Is that what we're well? Well, Blackberry, the the platonic ideal of Blackberry, mm -hmm. as it existed in the platonic forms space would not exist on earth okay right here he's drawing attention to the idea of of language but if we think that the idea of a blackberry the ideal blackberry exists and we don't have the real blackberry here mm -hmm. then our our word for it has a certain disconnection and it's an elegy just saying it is marking its passing yeah, in some ways. Elegiac, right? Isn't that the word you... you uh... Language, in thinking, in even thinking through the ideal forms, mm -hmm. right? That you're using language to create a concept that there is a perfect Blackberry out there mm -hmm. that you will never obtain. I ate it. <laughs> when did you eat it? I was walking with the boys. Yeah? Yeah. It was a perfect day. Uh -huh. The kids were both perfect. I and thought... You were there too. <laughs> I thought for sure you were thinking back to the very first time that we took Mercer to the park up in Kaiser mm -hmm. that's full of blackberries. Oh, yeah. That would have been it, but then I, didn't, I wanted to include the other. You wanted to include me and Miles, too. Yeah. yeah. And you were carrying the boys on your shoulders. Uh, I was walking with one, and you were carrying. Every one of those was a perfect blackberry. Yeah, yep. it felt, felt that I way. I found the vending machine for the perfect blackberry. <laughs> It's in a park in yep. no, in Oregon. Oh, okay, no, yeah. No. Sorry, we don't want to give away the platonic ideal of a park right. on it's an in August Nevada. day. It's in Southern Nevada. <laughs> but okay, so here he's 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 discussing. He's drawing okay. our attention to theories of language. Now I can't help but notice this word "signify" mm -hmm. at the end. That's a very specific word. I, I think he's drawing our attention to the way in which words are only tangentially related to physical objects. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my 20s, 
think having not read any linguistic theory, I was satisfied what seemed to me the originality of his thinking here, that the word blackberry is not, in fact, blackberry, mm-hmm. a blackberry, right? Um, that the word is a kind of ghost of the actual thing. Uh, and you could sit there saying blackberry, and you may not even have a blackberry in front of you. Mm-hmm. This idea of a word being a kind of ghostly figure or a spiritual figure to the physical thing, I think, is where this idea of of an elegy comes from. Mm -hmm. An elegy, which, of course, is a poem celebrating or lamenting the death of a person or thing. Because we, I I, I knew elegy because we, you taught me that word. It was was a show we did a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's a poetic term. It's a poetic form. Mm -hmm. So if a, a word is elegy to what it signifies, then a word... Is in some way um, doing so, in what it signifies. It's ce- celebratory of a thing that you can no longer have. Okay. Right. Like Macedon steak. <laughs> do you really want a Macedon steak? I do now. I bet it's super gamey. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Ew, yuck. I'll bet it is disgusting. <laughs> kind of overly greasy. Mm. I bet. But then as I went through my doctoral degree and I began reading, so sir, okay, if you're you're unfamiliar with. I am totally unfamiliar. Okay, so he's, he's a Swiss linguist and um, widely considered the, the founder of 20th century linguistics and semiotics. Okay. Um, he's a person who. Sure, that's not S.I. Hayakawa? I don't know who that is. Mm. <laughs> I only remember his name even though I took his class and his book. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Linguistics. Okay. Well, th- this guy's way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the founders of. So he's he's the person who conceived the concept of the sign, which is a linguistic unit. It's made up of a signifier and a signified concept. Mm-hmm. It's important to note that, that a sign is composed of these two parts. The sound image or signifier, the sound image or word, and the signified or the concept and or meaning, mm-hmm. right? So the linguistic sign unites not a thing and a name, but kind of a concept and a sound image. Okay. And sound image being, you know, you can sort of have a stand in for word. And the reason why it's sound image um, is that a word is both a sound and an image mm-hmm. <laughs> as it's written, right? Yeah. It's written down, but but you don't actually need to say it for it to be a word, right? Mm-hmm. If you see it written down, you hear the sound of it in your head. Right. Um, if you know the language mm-hmm. um, and you know how it's pronounced, of course. So there's this sort of sound image of the signifier, and then it's what it signifies or the signified concept. For example, let's take an actual sign, closed. Mm-hmm. A sign a shopkeeper may put in their window when they're away. The signifier is the word closed, and the signified concept is that the shop is, is shuttered for the evening or exactly. for however long. Yeah, totally. So a sign is a kind of closed circuit that requires both a recognizable signifier or word and a particular signified or meaning. Mm-hmm. Both have to be recognizable as such to be considered a whole sign. Mm-hmm. The signifier or word might be understood to mean something different. That is, have a different signifier if it appears in a different context. Mm-hmm. For example, okay, so if you take the word open, which you which, which let's let's flip the sign around and put open in the mm-hmm. shop, it could stand for a different signified and thus be a different sign. If, say, it was used to show a kid how to open Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you the know, word open written on somebody's forehead. It's just, it's, right. everything changes. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, that the context will change. Mm-hmm. What the signifier signifies. Mm-hmm. You have to have both or language doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If you share the same signifier with the people around you, you can understand what they're saying. If they have an t- entirely different set of signifiers, that is if they're speaking a different language than you are, then you can't understand what they're saying. But even if you can understand, if you're using the same language as them, you might not even have the same meaning or connotations of particular words then communication also breaks down, right? Like if I say beautiful, an utterly general word, Mm -hmm. I think I know what that means, but you may have another idea of what that means. So to arrive at the same idea, the exact same idea, even though we speak the same language, we still have a lot of work to do to clarify our communication. So, you know, once you get at signifier and signified, it doesn't always mean that it's going to translate perfectly. Mm -hmm. 
but and you and I will have different ideas of what the blackberry is too. Yes, but we do agree on a general sense, mm-hmm. right? A dark fruit. Yes, <laughs> and we may have ideas about like what it tastes like and and all of this, right? Like there is a kind of constellation of attributes attributed to that thing. So if a sign is made up of both signifier and signified, and both of these things can change, then it's kind of true that a word isn't even a word in the way that we properly think of it. Like all the things that I just said to break down a word to its variable components, right? Sound, image, concept, sign, and the various ways that word has words have all this slippage. Like to the it. word literal. Yeah, no now kidding. means figuratively. Yeah. It's actually a definition change of the word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I am literally on fire right now. Like, no, you literally are <laughs> no, not. not. <laughs> That's a metaphor. You are literally not on fire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. I mean, what we agreed so on. word slippage there. Yeah, for sure. So a word is elegy to what it signifies. It can remind us uh, that the thing which it refers to or signifies is lost in some way. By the end of the section, we see how disconnected the speaker feels. If he listened to Plato, then the very things that we can touch are only shadows of the truth, mm-hmm. right? Mere facsimiles of the real. And he, if he listens to Saussure, then the very language that we use to describe those worldly facsimiles has no true form, <laughs> um, has no real or actual correspondence to those things. The speaker is just in the, in this tremendous feeling of loss, or at least feeling lost. Mm-hmm. And then we get the next sort of section of this. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend, there was a thin wire of grief, mm. which I love. Yeah. Yeah, you, mm, I yeah, can tell you that's... love that too. I know a thin wire of grief is perfect. Yeah. It's a perfect way to say it. You, you can't if... There's it... a string of tension. And it's also something that doesn't want to flex well in you. It'll flex a given force, but it just certain movements will suddenly cue this memory. Yeah. Barbed and... Oh. Yeah. I can also imagine it being a uh, a, a, a musical string mm. being played, oh, right? Okay. Like, like this one one thing um, of grief, a tone almost querulous. After a while, I understood that talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, pine, hair woman, you, and I. So he's shifting us away from the big idea now to a kind of brief, minimalist scene. Mm-hmm. I usually imagine two people yep. in my mind, two men, talking at night while the shadows of the redwoods sort of tower over them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those conversations you have with friends that happen at a, at a pivotal moment of your life or that you you don't expect. Like you went over there for a beer and... You ended up talking for like five hours. Mm. (laughs) Those kinds of conversations you kind of fall into take you out of your life for a moment. I I took it as as a couple, I guess. Oh, really? Because In in the voice of my friend. Oh, in the voice of my friend. Okay. You're right. Yeah. But you're right. He goes from the big idea. We're talking about justice. It fades away. Pine. We're in the forest. It goes away. Yeah. Although, you know, couples can be friends. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. you're my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm married to you. Yeah. <laughs> you are somebody I'm married to. Yes. <laughs> you're going to get it. I know where you sleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's not exactly, I think, one of these conversations that you totally fall into and you come out with more clear. Mm-hmm. Right. Because. He and the friend does don't arrive at a clarity here, or there wouldn't be need for this poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? To be querulous is to be full of complaint. His friend has this thin wire of grief, as we as we noted. The speaker says he realizes that believing in such philosophies, however good or interesting they are, right, dissolves everything. And that means that everything we get after that is are the first things that come to mind when the speaker thinks of everything. Okay. Everything dissolves. And this is the fear of this, that somehow nothing we do or say has any meaning mm. at all, mm-hmm. right? If this is all just a facsimile and the words don't, <laughs> you know, the words are elegies to what they signify, you know, then like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> to quote Rudy Giuliani, truth isn't truth. <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks for that, Rudy. <laughs> From that list, there emerges a kind of associative leap into a clear and singular memory, right? We get we get justice, pine, hair, woman, you and I, and then we jump to instead of just instead of the platonic ideal of woman, we get a particular woman. Mm-hmm. There was a woman I made love to, and I remembered how holding her small shoulders in my hand sometimes. And this, this sentence is a very long sentence, and we end up very far away from where we start off, mm-hmm. and which is, is beautiful and dizzying, and I think a gorgeous example of associative leap of how memory works. Yeah. Right? Cause we, well, I'm saying yes. Now that you said that, I'm like, oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so did not occur to me on my own. So you get this list of things, and in that list you have woman, and then you and I, and you say you and I, and it feels so intimate. Mm. And I think that's why he jumps off into this memory of intimacy. There was a woman I made love to, and I remember how holding her small shoulders in my hand sometimes, I felt a violent wonder at her presence, like a thirst for salt for my childhood river with its island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange silverfish called pumpkin seed. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and there's yeah. an example. It's ital- <laughs> pumpkin seeds italicized. And yes, you say pumpkin seed. I do not think fish. No. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's a beautiful example. Right. But, but okay. So, but look, look at how far we, we jump from, these moments all in one sentence mm-hmm. we start f- with the woman and his feelings for her yeah. right then we get this phrase thirst for salt which is fantastic which is amazing <laughs> it's so good i love it like if you're feeling like this desire and you just like can't get enough of it and and getting it makes you feel more desire mm-hmm. right and then for my childhood river so a thirst for salt jumps in in, in into also a thirst for my childhood river right? Syntactically, uh, which of course he can never taste again. And then inside this, this childhood river is this very specific memory about the muddy places. And I feel like this, I mean, this is a deep psychological attachment in thinking about muddy places, even as a child to love what you can't entirely know, what you can't see through to, but can still find the delight and surprise in like finding those tiny orange silverfish called pumpkin seed. And and to, to move that far, I think, is a beautiful way of explaining how love and sex and moments of de- desire and intimacy are never entirely enclosed in of themselves, mm-hmm. right? They echo. They, they reach back. And they're just fragments. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the also like the, the playwright w- David Mamet talked about that. His line was, "When you think about the well, very crassly, if you think about the greatest fuck of your life, uh huh. Well, I have to censor that probably. If you think about the greatest lay of your life, uh-huh. it's never the experience. It's just something she did. Her eyes moved a certain way. It's the way she scratched behind her ear. Really, yeah. Just talk about. It's- oh yeah, yeah. Well, it also goes on to that, like in in, in some of the next line, mm-hmm. right? But yes, you're right. There, there's these moments, but also that these moments don't exist alone. As in, even when you're having that memory of of that particular moment, it is a jambalaya. Oh, it is. It is firing all these other neurons in mm-hmm. your brain, right? Like, oh God, a thirst for salt. Yes, the childhood river. <laughs> you know, like your brain is just going to go there. You're like, oh my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> this is like this other thing, right? And and all of it. All of it shoots through your mind as if your mind were a lightning rod of mm-hmm. some kind, right? All at once. Um, that's, a conduit, yeah. Yes. It's part of the pleasure of that experience. It's not just the experience of itself, but the way that it links to other moments of pleasure. It begins with the physical, right? A violet wonder at her presence when I held her shoulder. And then it goes deep into memory, back mm-hmm. through childhood. And then at that point, he realizes... It hardly had to do with her, right? (laughs) That Mm -hmm. she'd become a catalyst for his own memories and his own mind, his own feelings. But then we arrive at this other beautiful statement, one that that should have been made by like every 
English-speaking poet before, and yet never was made. The kind of metaphor that, like, longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. Yes! (laughs) You win! (laughs) Like, that line is so amazing to me. I'm like, oh, I mean, everybody should have been saying this all along. (laughs) Exactly, longing, because desire is full of endless distances. distances. There has to be, like, a long space between things, so that even if you're in the actual physical moment, which is what he's talking about here, you get that thirst for salt, that 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 sort of like I can't get enough of what I am currently doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to consider her further after this, right? To consider her internal life, the one that he can't actually have right. any access to. But he's um, quite he's quite egalitarian here. I yeah, like that. Yeah. And realizes that if this is what she was for him, that what's possible is that he might have had the same effect on her. Yeah. It, I must have been the same to her. Then there's a next statement where there's a sadness that sort of returns. We have this intense memory and a sadness that what they experienced together wasn't together at all. Or that they somehow didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. Right. We know it's a sadness because the speaker protests beginning with but. But I remember so much the way her hands dismantled bread. The thing her father said that hurt her what she dreamed and at this point we know that he must have loved her and i say this and when i get to these lines like these lines kill me Mm -hmm. they're so specific and they're they're so intentional you don't say of somebody that you haven't loved you don't remember things like the way somebody's hands dismantled bread you would if she had superfluous thumbs <laughs> or cloven hoofs. No, don't ruin this for me. <laughs> I love that he remembers how her hands dismantled bread. The mm-hmm. thing her father said that hurt her what she dreamed, that it was more than the physical and it was more than his own experiences, right? That his sort of correspondence to her, his uh, love for her. Uh, drew this in in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the desire is um, not just about the physical. Right. It's about so much more. And at this point... Or um, even if it was a tryst, there was definitely a connection. They they spent time oh, yeah. communicating with one another before anything physical yes. happened. And it was enough to... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then it goes on to uh, the ending mm. here. There are moments when the body is as numinous as words days that are the good flesh continuing such tenderness those afternoons and evenings saying blackberry 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 any any ideas here no (laughs) no just just trying to make something manifest that's not there Maybe a, a, a memory or a, okay. a, um, no, an experience. I li- no, I like I like the idea of trying to make something manifest that's not there. There's something about this ending that feels very incantatory mm-hmm. in its in its way. Uh, you know, of this repetition of this thing. So his claim here that the body is as numinous as words, that they are spiritual and mysterious, right? That the body can be as mysterious and spiritual as words, hmm. and the ending becomes a kind of chant. When he says Blackberry, I think I think of everything I associate with Blackberry. When I said it earlier in the poem, you immediately jumped to the memory of yeah, that, of us walking through the walking through the forest eating blackberries with our with our children. Yeah. So that's reader response. That's my baggage. No. In this case it was a good baggage to bring. <laughs> it was a lovely bag. I'd bring that bag anywhere. But I love I love that it's specifically Blackberry too, because of its because it's a seasonal fruit. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't get to eat blackberries all year round. In, and it's. Yeah. Yeah. In the West, where we are now and where it's I grew the up. End of summer. And it, yes, it's I mean, it is quintessential end of summer yeah. and it grows wild and it goes grows through and around pines and it's black and luscious and ripe. And They're like these painful and painful. And yeah. Invasive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, like... I mean, but yeah, you, you pick them and you eat them and you lick your fingers and you prick your fingers on the thorns trying to get them. Right. 
it's just such like a perfect image of like love and desire and sex and food and childhood all kind of rolled up into mm-hmm. one. And that may be total reader response for me because, you know, I mean, as like a, a teenager in the Northwest, any of the sex that happened was usually in a, was in a blackberry bush. <laughs> That is the traditional place to copulate when one is a teenager. You're a in the- tough breed up here. <laughs> no, it just you know you you can't you can't go indoors because your parents will catch you. So right. you have to go outdoors, and so like forever and a day, I will always like think of like the smell of the summer in the Northwest, where you have pine and wet earth and mm-hmm. sweet grass and blackberries. Hmm. I mean, if somebody could make a cologne of that, I would just be like in a state all the time. (laughs) 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 So I I mean, I have a personal recollection of of blackberries specifically, but. Okay. Uh, Days that are days that are the good flesh continuing. Yeah. Well, he, he right at this point, at the end, he's marrying this idea of concept, word and physicality. Mm hmm. As, as we've seen through this memory that he's given us, right? They aren't separate at all. Right. The words and the memory and the physicality of the thing is all mashed up together in how we, how we experience it. Mm-hmm. So, so at the end, he calls for the end of the delineation of things, basically. That the, that the way uh-huh. we understand our lives is not through these specific philosophical lenses, but everything that's connected to everything through us. The physical world the physical world and words and our understanding of those things aren't separate at all. And so that ending to me feels absolutely filled with light. Like it's kind of affirmation of life, right? Blackberry, Blackberry, Blackberry. Um, There's a good and very brief essay, I believe by Pimone Triplett on, uh, on this poem on the poetry foundations website. And uh, she says that in the second half of the poem, Robert Haas translates the word blackberry from rational to ritual. Oh, at the very end with the yes. incantation. Yeah. So the, the main quote here, which I really love from this, from this essay, the next turn to the flesh and blood woman in which he remembers so much the way her hands dismantled bread brings us far toward the bond between word and flesh, just as surely as any more traditional rite. The sacrament at hand, in your hand, is the act of the poem itself, and you complete the ceremony by reading it. I love this reading. So this poem starts out in the utterly abstract and narrows down to the particular through words concepts are transformed into things, right? It's doing the opposite of what Plato wants to do, (laughs) of transforming things into ideas. It's a thumb in the eye of Plato. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in some ways. The poem, the poem as it goes on, it, it transfers its attention from concept to things, uh, thereby letting us feel the poet making those things, those words into the physical, right? You feel, the, the way I like to think of it as at the end, you can kind of feel the weight of the word blackberry in your mouth as you say it. Mm-hmm. And now because we link all things in our minds and because we now have read this poem, this poem will be linked to that thing. So now every time you eat a blackberry, yep. you'll have a poem on your tongue. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that's, nice. how I, that's how I like to think of it. And I'd like to end everything on that. Yes. But we need to read it again. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> That was, um, still end on that. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> For the second read. Meditation at Lagunitas by Robert Haas. All the new thinking is about loss. In this, it resembles all the old thinking. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea. That the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch is, by his presence, some tragic 
falling off from a first world of undivided light. Or the other notion that because there is in this world no one thing to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds, a word is elegy to what it signifies. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend, there was a thin wire of grief, a tone almost querulous. After a while, I understood that talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, pine, hair, woman, you, and I. There was a woman I made love to, and I remember how, holding her small shoulders in my hands sometimes, I felt a violent wonder at her presence, like a thirst for salt, for my childhood river with its island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange silver fish called pumpkin seed. It hardly had to do with her. Longing we say, because desire is full of endless distances. I must have been the same to her. But I remember so much, the way her hands dismantled bread, the thing her father said that hurt her, what she dreamed. There are moments when the body is as numinous as words. Days that are the good flesh continuing. Such tenderness, those afternoons and evenings, saying blackberry, blackberry, blackberry. And you want to end on your dynamite line again? <laughs> because I, I, you know, I'm kind of a little irritated because when I think blackberries, I only want to think of our family hiking at the end of August. You can think of that. Yeah, but now Robert Haas is muscling in, so now I got him. <laughs> there's there's going to be five of us with Robert Haas. Our family plus Robert Haas. <sighs> Come on, Bob. Let's go. Gonna go get blackberries. You know you're part of this now. Jackass. <laughs> You and your beautiful works of literature. You're in a grumpy mood today. <laughs> <laughs> you are being a grump of us. Okay. So at the end, where you hear this word repeated, you begin to feel the weight of the word blackberry in your mouth. And because we link things in our mind, this poem will forever be linked to that thing. So now... Every time you eat a blackberry, you'll have a palm on your tongue. And now I'll remember you saying that, so that's that's nice too. <laughs> our theme music is by Status Q. We have links on our homepage for you to subscribe to our show on iTunes and Spotify. You can also subscribe through the Google Play Store. Our show notes have their own tab on our website. There you can find a copy of the work we discussed, a link to purchase the work, author information, or anything else we thought might be relevant, like the essay by... Pimone Triplett. Uh, and you said it was on poetry.org or... The Poetry Foundation. The Poetry Foundation. Whatever. I will put the link there. If you have a comment, suggestion, correction, or alternate reading of the poem, please send us a message using our contact page. If you want to hear Danielle read some of her work, click on the Vanity Press tab on our website. Okay, well, I guess we can only have frozen blackberries at this time of year. <laughs> Let's go put it in a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a, a true bastardization of the original <laughs> form of the piece and delicious. <laughs> we'll incorporate that into your, your birthday. Uh, Celebrations? Yeah, I've got plans. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to knowing those plans. Okay, everybody, you guys take care. Have a good night. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.
first. I'm like, wait a minute. It's my birthday poem. I'm trying to think of my intro. I'm totally spaced. I'd. You'd think I would have. You're not feeling like you're in a really cute mood. I, I am think. not. I, I'll, 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 I'll roll with it. I'll, I'll feed off your energy. I'm just. Okay. Should I start? Welcome to Lit from the Basement. This is Danielle. This is Max. I'm an author and professor. I wasn't an actor, but I played one on TV. Now it's stay-at-home dad. 